You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Thursday the 20th of July. Tom Stanley in for Nick, who's en route to America. He might be there, I don't know, but uh, more from him a little bit later on in the show. I'm joined by senior writer at the Racing Post, Lee Mottershead, to discuss plenty. And Lee, we start with the ride from Iqbal Khan last night at Kalani, which got the rider a 10-day ban. This was sort of gathering a pace on, on Twitter, on social media, last night what did you make of the ride what do you make of the ban well um you don't expect um the first division of a one mile handicap at kalani on a wednesday evening to cause a furore even in a vehicle on a platform like social media that loves a furore but this probably did merit one uh iqbal khan claiming seven pounds was riding a horse called lucky queen uh, for trainer Pat Murphy in the Rose Hotel handicap. The horse was in a midfield position uh, in the early stages, uh, was moved forward by uh, the jockey uh, into a challenging position up the home straight. And then the key part, the thing that really got people het up, was that inside pretty much the final furlong, and I've counted this again today a few times, The jockey uses the whip on Lucky Queen on 13 occasions. Um, Some of the whip strikes are carried out in very rapid succession. Um, The whip action is ugly. The riding style is, I think we used to use the term agricultural, and I think that would um, be fair in this instance. It wasn't a pretty ride at all. So the ride itself got people angry, and rightly so, um, as did, I think, the penalties. The jockey received a whip ban of 10 days, um, which I think a lot of people felt was inadequate. And Tom, I'll, I'll pick up on that, but you've got some explanation for the whip ban, haven't you? Yeah, so having spoken to someone at the the IHRB who who don't want to pass official comment because the um, case uh, is likely to go to appeal, and therefore it falls into an ongoing case category. Um, but the, the as I understand it, the the rider could only be given that because of the amount of strikes given. Um, so the the penalty structure. Um, was changed in Ireland towards the start of this month after the blank day they had. I think it came in on the first Tuesday after after Derby weekend. And the penalty structure has effectively got harsher. So above nine, um, Iqbal's got two days. Iqbal Khan's got two days. Then another day for each strike thereafter. And then has been penalised for not giving the horse time to respond. Um, which in the the stipe size amounts to uh, the the ten days. Now that will be reviewed when going to appeal, but um, it's not as if you can give any more because the rider doesn't have anything else on his record. There's a sliding scale over in Ireland, so if you have a previous history, the penalty would have been harsher. So on the rules as they're written, that's what 
that's what he gets. It's not as if you can judge the ride and say, but look how bad it looks. Um, he, you know, he shouldn't be on a horse and it, and it, and it looks appalling. He should get X amount. It is, it is 10 days for what he's done without a previous record. Um, my view, Lee, is that you you should look at the ride as is and say the jockey has his license taken away full stop. Whether or not this is going to happen, I don't know. And he has to undergo some sort of testing um, beyond this for him to get that license back. Well, yeah. And just before, just, just, I just want to say something about, the, the again, the penalty. But some, one of the things that people were saying on social media, yes, or some people were saying on social media, was um, Iqbal Khan merited some uh, greater understanding and perhaps leniency than we might normally give a jockey because um this was his first ride now it was his first ride in ireland but you've done some uh, ace detective work and uncovered it wasn't his first ride first ride no he's ridden winners or, or winner um brackets s uh, i don't know how many in pakistan i believe um he works for jim bolger he was riding for Pat Murphy on, I believe, the decision of the owner. So it, it wasn't Pat's decision to put him on the horse. It was the owner who 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 has put Iqbal Khan on the horse. I guess fundamentally, um, and return to anything you want to, Lee, or, or come on to mm. this, the the blame doesn't lie at the feet of, of uh, per se, the person that's put him on the horse. It doesn't lie at the feet of Iqbal Khan, I don't believe. Um it lies at the feet of those that have that have given him a license in a 14 runner race in Ireland with a champion jockey winning the race um it, it doesn't look good it's not good for the horse and 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 there are safety issues arising from it as well I, I think so the question is Lee really how has Iqbal Khan got his license yes and I think that is a a fair question based on the performance that we saw in the saddle at Kalani um, Iqbal clearly wasn't riding um, to a standard anywhere near equivalent of the jockeys he was riding against. Certainly not in terms of the way he used his whip. He looked like a, um, an inexperienced amateur jockey riding against professionals. And again, that's not meant to be directly harsh against Iqbal Khan. It's more, as you say, Tom, a case of should Iqbal Khan have been riding against those jockeys um, and as you say one does question whether Iqbal Khan should have had a license to ride against professional jockeys in that race should there have been greater checks and balances um, of his riding capabilities before he was able to ride uh, at Kalani yesterday in general terms just on the penalties um, Tom I think uh, I think the, the point that's been made to you um, via the IHRB regarding the number of days that the jockey received on this occasion is fair in the sense that stewards can only um, act with the rules and the penalties that they are working around. Um, and it is the case that the IHRB has tightened up penalties, beefed up penalties for both whip transgress transgressions and interference transgressions on race course. And that is a good thing. However, you are then asked, or you, you then must look at the penalties themselves and ask, do they fit the crime committed? Now, there's been a lot of spotlight shone 
on British racing's whip penalties um, in in recent times, because again, the, the penalties and the rules have been changed significantly. Now, had this offence taken place on a British race course, it's just interesting to show the contrast and the comparison here. So on the Irish race course, 10 days, had this happened in Britain, because Ekbal Khan used his whip on 13 occasions, that would have been well over um, the permitted level of six. And as it was more than five over, as five as it was five, at least five over the, those six strikes, the horse would have been disqualified. Iqbal Khan would have received a 20-day suspension for frequency. He would have received four days for not giving his mount time to respond. And I think if you look at the the video of the race, it's perfectly possible that he has also used his whip in the incorrect in an incorrect place on occasions, which would have given him another four days. So a bare minimum would have been 24 days, possibly 28 days. And it feels to me, looking at that particular act of riding, that particular set of transgressions, that 24 slash 28 days is far more suitable to the crime committed than 10 days. I think it sends out a, would have sent out a much stronger signal. So I just think that although the Irish rules have been beefed up, this particular instance shows that potentially on certain occasions, they need to be beefier. And so on to Holly Doyle, who rode Nashmore up to success last week in the, the Falmouth Stakes. A chance for her to, to reflect on that now and, and also talk about her potential chances, which naturally she plays down of, of being champion jockey, but her reflection on Nashmore first of all. Yeah, it was um, a huge performance. It was just great to see her back to her best. And, um, you know, she's, she's 100% now retained her ability from three to four. So... Take me through the different feel you got from her compared to ever further. Um, yeah, she just got into um, a rhythm straight away, really, and she just dropped ahead and relaxed beautifully. Um, I never had to kind of take her back or ask her to go forward or anything. I just dropped my hands and rode away. We landed, and she got into, um, you know, like I say, a lovely rhythm. Um, you know, Newmarket is a, a challenging, undulating track, but I know she'd had a, a you know, she's run at the really mar before and she's she's had a race course gallop so um i knew she'd handle it but um no she just got into an, an exceptional rhythm and that's what you want on that track isn't it mm. and and was it always the plan i know you've dominated over 10 before but to, to to ride her a bit colder over a mile yeah i think after her last one in new new Mar- uh newcastle sorry she she displayed a bit of freshness and she was quite gassy on the front end so that's the last thing i really wanted to happen i mean if she hadn't have done that in hindsight we might have been thinking of riding her a bit handier but um definitely didn't want to do that this time hmm. well, off the back of that did, did you did do you reassess your feelings about her as a filly or did she do what you expected her to do um she, she she's done what i knew she could do i didn't expect her to do it in the way that she did really off the back of her last run but um we've always you know she, she she's by frankel and uh, she she has a lot of speed for a city that you know has been tried over a mile and a half and gets 10 um so you know she, she has uh, she does retain quite a lot of speed and um well, you know she has got a devastating turn mm-hmm. of foot as she display and, and does it change how you approach a nassau now or not not necessarily as in how you ride her 
Um, not really. I rode a pretty cold in the Nassau last year. Um, you know, it wasn't a big field. It was a, you know, the, the, the race was steadily run and I, it prob- probably was run to suit her, to be honest, because of the turn of foot that she, she has. And, you know, she, she, she's got the gears for the miles. So a steadily run 10 was actually okay because um, I had the, the horse and, and the gears to get me to where I needed to be. So I think, I, you know, it wouldn't change my views upon how, how I'd ride her. Um, I think I've ridden her in every possible way now. So she's pretty versatile. <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. And something like a QE2, a straight mile at Ascot, um, would be would be feasible, wouldn't it, now at the, at the back end of the season, off the back of that run at the weekend? You'd like to think so from what she's displayed. I mean, obviously it's down to the, you know, the boss and um, you know what they want to do with her, but it's a long season ahead, so we, we'll take things as they come. But it's definitely... Um, you know on the mind i'd say and i had a, a conversation after that day with a, a few colleagues thinking this this holly doyle champion jockey you know it it it's not beyond the realms of possibility i think i put the mockers on you holly because <laughs> you've been a bit quiet since but is that at the forefront of your mind or is it something that do you think it's realistic um you know i it's at the, always at the forefront of my mind and I, you know, it's my dream to be champion jockey, but I'm realistic and, you know, I'm trying my hardest and give it 100%, but uh, it's not going to be easy, um, you know, with the likes of William, Oisin and Tom, you know, displaying their dominance, really. I, I don't think I've ridden a winner since Nashua last Friday, so... Um, but you're, you're second, yeah, you're second in the t- you're second in the table, Holly. Yeah, I'm still hanging in there, but like I say, it's, it's a long year ahead, but I'll, I'll give it my all and see how things pan out and... And I, I hope one day, but I'm not. Um, I'm under no illusion as to how hard it's going to be. Well, in all seriousness, is there a turning point in the season where you have to? I know you, it's always at the forefront of your mind, but it, it, do you get to a point in the season, look at where you are in the table, and go right? Now we go because something feels like it has to change at a certain point in the season, numbers wise, etc. Working with your agent to try and target it, where you've you've almost got to switch the mindset. And are you there yet, or do you get to sort of mid August or, or or a bit later before you make that decision? Um, the trouble is, I don't really have a whole lot of control over what I do. Really, I mean, my agent is trying to get me the best rides the whole time and I, I don't know what more he can do really and I'm just trying to ride out for as many people as possible and you know get as many rides as I can for um you know as many different trainers but um you know I've, I've got to go where my bosses send me really so that's not really an option to be picking and choosing really as to where I go and what I ride um so usually it works out that I kind of I, I go where my you know my boss's horses run and I, I try and pick up what I can along the way so it's not really an option for me to be able to pick and choose where I want to go on a daily basis but um I try and make the best of what I can do <laughs> yeah absolutely and you're doing just that Holly thanks ever so much for your time and um good luck at the weekend the rest of the year thanks for having me cheers Lee can she be champion jockey he certainly can be champion jockey yeah I I, I would be um more optimistic for Holly's prospects than maybe Holly is. Although, you know, people do tend to play down their chances sometimes of success for understandable reasons. You don't want to set yourself um, sometimes ambitions, targets that you feel are likely not to be set. It's, it, it, can, it can be better mentally to be more realistic of what you might achieve. However, looking at it as a, as a third party 
if you like, I think she does have a chance. Now, I think William Buick at the moment is quite clearly the the strong, red-hot, odds-on favourite to be champion jockey. Uh, he's, as we talk now, he's 13 when he's in front of, of Holly Doyle and Tom Marquand. And that has been, despite the fact his main stable, Charlie Appleby, hasn't been in the 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 red hot form that he was last year so i think william is very much the most likely individual to be champion jockey but holly is only 13 behind she's getting support from a wide range of trainers she's an outstanding rider um who will continue to ride lots of winners over the coming months so i think she has got a chance um do i think she'll be champion jockey this year no i don't but i think she is um, a contender and I think for the sport as well Tom we can sometimes underplay in terms of how we how we sell um, the sport um, that this this particular championship title battle um, if it got close and future ones could be really great PR for the sport particularly because and this sounds a bit soppy but you've got a husband and wife uh, pair of jockeys here who at the moment are in second and third in the jockeys championship They've written identical numbers of winners so far in the title, 43, very similar number of rides. It's a great story. It's a really, really good story. Um, more than that, both Holly and Tom are incredibly uh, likable, decent individuals. They engage well with the media and therefore with the public. Um, I think we uh, are extremely lucky to have them. And it would be wonderful, I think, if if, if Holly did get uh, involved in the title scrap this year in future years and if tom was involved at the same time so much the better absolutely um and if if holly was to ever do it goodness me it would be uh one serious achievement and and fabulous for the sport the irish oaks lee we now know the final field oh we don't know who's riding who though the, the 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 key point here being that we don't expect ryan moore to jump ship and ride warm heart over save the last dance do we no, I think it would be a it would be a surprise. Um, the market tells you that Save the Last Dance looks the the likeliest winner of the race, and certainly looks the the number one contender for Bally Doyle. Aiden has declared four fillies for the race, and therefore uh, he has half the field in the race this year. Save the Last Dance, Warm Heart, Be Happy, who he keeps talking about in a very positive way. And for, I, I'd back to each way for the. The Oaks, she was taken out on the day of the race, but I, th- I think she's a smart filly. Uh, Library's in there as well. We've got eight fillies in the race in total. Uh, British representation comes from uh, the Rafe Beckett, Judmont-owned Blue Stocking. It's a it's a decent renewal of the Irish Oaks. And again, it has to be said, I made this point um, in the column in the, in the race the first couple of weeks ago. We are lucky that Aidan and the Coolmore owners are prepared to run their best horses against each other you know there would have been opportunities for warm heart and say the last dance to be to be separated they look the two likeliest winners of the race and yet they're competing within the same stable so that is a that is a a very good thing um and just in terms of the race itself i guess if say the last dance can return to the level she set at, at chester she would be very hard to be. I guess the question is, is the real Save the Last Dance the filly we saw at Chester on that ground? Uh, or is she the filly who ran a perfectly good race, very honourable race behind Soul Sister in the Oaks? I guess we might learn more on Saturday. 
Yes, Aiden may well have or does have half the field for the Irish Oak. Might have half the field for the for the King George as well. Goodness me, this is this is turning into a proper race, isn't it? As yeah, well, we were on the podcast yesterday. Yeah, well, say so as talking about as we did about um, Aiden taking his best horses into the same race and letting them go against each other. That's absolutely looking like being the case in the King George. Um, really informative interview with Nick on the pod yesterday. Sounds like. Uh, potentially five runners for Ballydoyle in the King George. It looks like being a wonderful King George, particularly if Desert Crown does line up. Again, Bruce was saying yesterday, Bruce Raymond, say he's Hell's uh, racing uh, advisor, that the horse had worked well in Newmarket, as we um, read elsewhere, heard elsewhere, um, and that he thinks the horse is fit enough to go for the King George. Ultimately, some Michael Stout, I think, will make that decision with cons- uh, on consultation with the owner but we've got um we know we've got king of steel august roda emily up john pile driver hookham if he gets the ground uh we've got luxembourg we've hopefully got westover hopefully got adelaide river uh sim camille from france uh you, you might see dead uh, Deville legend in there we could get a double figure field we could get a king george that looks like an old style King George that we used to know and love. There's been so much discussion debate in recent years about the health of the, the King George. Um, so much harking back to the old days, particularly, I guess that 1970s and eighties era um, when you would say the King George was in its pomp and was probably perceived and was an equal to the pre-delac the triumph or certainly very close to it i think in recent years there's no doubt that in terms of standing uh and in terms of uh the ambition with which top flight connections want to win races the arc has galloped clear of the the king george but we have had some good renewals in recent years i remember enables uh first king george when she took on uh, Ulysses and a big field was a cracking race. Last year we had a good race as well, um, with with Paul Driver winning with with some good three representation. But this looks a potentially vintage, old school King George, the Derby winner, the Derby second, uh, some cracking older horses. I just really hope they they the big guns all get there, Tom, because we would have something very special indeed. Well, here is Ascot's director of racing, Nick Smith. Aiden yesterday, uh, I think he surprised us all with his, uh, you know, potentially running five horses. I mean, whether that comes to fruition or not <laughs> remains to be seen. But nevertheless, that probably indicates that he'll have three, um, and three, three from Aiden gives you every chance of getting to the to the sort of the magic eight num- eight runners. <laughs> and um, and what a quality lineup it, it looks like being. I mean, this will be the first the first King George I think since 1994 when uh, I've been King Theatre reposed as he's the uh, the Derby one two in August Rosanna and King Steel reposed. So that that's a very exciting uh, angle. Um, and then adding these this absolutely elite bunch of older horses in obviously pile driver who can. Um, and that various others, obviously, in the race. Westover is a possibility still. Uh, Luxembourg, of course, for Aiden himself. And then, of course, you've, uh, you, you know, you've got what the race was, was framed all those many years ago for. Nick, was there ever a, a time in your tenure at Ascot that you had concerns about the race or its position in the calendar? I'm definitely not positioned in the calendar. I mean, the position. 
position in the calendar is exactly where it should be. It's exactly the right position for the derby. Um, it's, it's exactly the right position. It's as good as it can be, uh, I suppose, for the eclipse. Um, and it's, it's a congested, it's a congested period. It's definitely in the right in the right uh, the right time slot. Races slightly go in and out of fashion. I mean, and, and it's, it's probably not the King George's fault that certain, there was a period where maybe the Derby winners simply weren't good enough to run in the King George. So there's no point taking a Derby winner who isn't good enough to the King George because it is the elite test for a, for, for a Derby winner. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it swings around about so some years it's, it's vintage like this year, some years it's very, very interesting, competitive, some years less competitive. I mean, the year that, one of the years that an able won her, won one of her King George's, there was only three runners in the race because there was simply nothing good enough to take her on. So, you know, and of course, during the period when the King George maybe didn't have as many three-year-olds, it was probably the same period when more four-year-olds were kept in training. Um, and and that, of course, means if there's a stronger bank of four-year-olds, it's less appealing to the three-year-olds. You have to be elite. So elite means um, you know, a horse like August Rodan, who, who's won two derbies. So why not now test him in the, in the, in the top company against older horses in the, in the what what is the best middle distance race in in the country for all the horses? Uh, or, for both generations. Yes, of course. Yeah. Also on um, on the meeting itself, um, no lady amateur riders race. Obviously, a race with a, a rich history. Um, am I right in saying it was moved to the to the previous day last year, and, and now it, it it isn't there altogether? What's the reason behind that? Oh no, that's not actually entirely correct. Um, it was moved. It, it had to be moved from the Saturday because the Hong Kong Jockey Club won't take amateur riders races for Whirlpool. So that so it, so it was moved to the Friday. We because of the new structure and the new plan, the, the new central plan to make racing more competitive in this July period where there's a huge pinch point. Friday, most Friday race cards are being run at six races, so we had to move a race. So what we've done is we've moved the the lady riders at uh, the lady amateur riders race to, to September Friday. So hopefully you'll have a new home there. Understood. So it's still there. It's 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 still going to be as, as well received as ever. It just doesn't have its sort of its its King George position, if you like. Well, to be honest, on the, on a Friday, <laughs> Friday the King George will be no will be no more high profile than the Friday in September, no more mm. or less high profile. And once it was moved off the Saturday for whirlpool reasons, whether it's a, a Friday in July or Friday in September, as long as the race is run, which we're very supportive of, um, that's the main point. Understood. And Shergar Cup, there's been a few news pieces coming out about that. What can you tell us about who's likely to be over? Yeah, so, so we're putting out the, the teams today for the Dubai Duty Free Shergar Cup, which followed hot on the heels of the King George a couple of weeks later. Um, of course, Frankie Dettori, um, Ascot's favourite son, is going to captain the European team as part of his finale uh, tour. That's, that's the first... The first certainty the meeting landed. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Imagine trying to run the Shogun Cup this year without Frankie. Um, no, very. He's looking forward to it. As is, he's going to be his old friend Olivier Pellier, who he's won the competition before with, will be with him. Uh, big names from overseas. Vincent Ho, who I know you mentioned yesterday, or Nick mm. mentioned yesterday on the podcast, is over for Glorious Goodwood. He's staying on for the Shogun Cup as well, which is fantastic. He'll be the captain of that team, and he'll be joined by his former compatriot, well, for his former. Um, country mate as opposed to compatriot Joe Marrera um, and we will have an exciting new uh, ladies team unfortunately Emma Jane Wilson uh, there's a change in the pattern uh, at Woodbine which means she's unable to, 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 to ride this year which is a shame but of course uh, Hayley who we have such a great relationship with is is really an unofficial ambassador for the Shergar Cup she'll captain the ladies team and she's, she'll be joined by a new name um, in, uh, in Safi, uh, Safi Osborne uh, she was thrilled to be asked to do it after she 
wrote those couple of winners earlier in the season at Ascot, um, and uh, Holly Doyle, of course, um, and, and she'll be riding against her, her, um, her husband, Tom. So, so, we, so the teams are all there. We're looking forward to it very much. Cheers, Nick. All the best. Thanks, Tom. Lee, I know something you wanted to pick up on there is the the amateur ladies race. That's good news that it that it it's not been scrapped. It's it's going to be running in September. Do you think it's it's losing out on not being on King George weekend? Uh, potentially, I think it lost out um, Tom when it was moved from King George Day to the Friday. Um, and it, I suppose it, again, we, we, I spoke spoke earlier on about the old school King George. Well, of course, the old school King George Day always began at two o'clock with the the amateur ladies race on the round mile at Ascot, um, a conditions race in which you had the likes of Maxine Juster, Amanda Perrett, Princess Sam won the race. And in later years, uh, again, all the top amateurs took part in the race. It, it, it was last run like that in 1997. So that's now 26 years ago. It became a, a seven furlong handicap, um, but outside the the mainstream broadcast window, so its profile inevitably dipped. It did get still really big fields as a seven furlong handicap in its in its early runnings. You know, you had fields of 28, 25, 24, 22. There, there were big field handicaps, competitive races. Um, but it has to be said that recent runnings haven't met that met that level of competitiveness you know there were nine runners in 2021 eight runners last year it's not the race it was um i think it's a shame it's off king george weekend although nick um laid out perfectly understandable reasons why that is the case um but it's a clearly a very different race a six furlong handicap in september this year is a long way removed from the race that used to start king george day on mainstream television that's regrettable but perhaps it tells us more about the i suppose the amateur rider sector um these days and the health of that sector if the race can only achieve eight or nine runners as a handicap that maybe is telling us something and that's a shame uh, we like to inject some good news into the podcast uh, and we're going to do that now uh, a press release yesterday was brought to my attention from the international forum for the aftercare of racehorses ifr who have released some films lead to highlight how thoroughbreds can be used to ha- to help humans with mental or, or physical health issues uh, i think we've known this for, for some time but it, it's good that the sport is is putting it out there yeah, absolutely. Anyone who is aware of or who's uh, the work that Great would do um, over here, who was visiting them, will will, will know um, how much great work that, that this 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 that, that the horses can do with humans. Heroes as well. Um, plenty of charities do that now, and I think this this film, this IFAR film, hosted by uh, Catherine Ford. Uh, he'll be known over here as a presenter on Sky Sports Racing. Um, it's a, it's a really interesting um, piece of broadcasting. Uh, it's less than fifteen minutes long, so it's not going to take too much of your your time to watch it. But it'd be time well spent. You, we go around the world in the in the film. You see um, what horses can do for people who really need a bit of help um, in their life. It's a pretty inspirational. Um, bit of film and I think at a time when um, the very sport of horse racing is increasingly threatened by opponents of the sport this is a valuable um, a valuable documentation 
of the work that thoroughbreds can do with people, but particularly thoroughbreds who have had a racing career, because the point is made in the film that racing actually helps thoroughbreds to develop um, the nature and behaviour and empathy with, with people that is so evident in this film. And if you head to YouTube, you can you can search IFAR, IFAR video magazine and the latest one from July, you will be able to see there. Well, a notable Irish raider this weekend at Newbury's son of Cobb Ballas, trained by this man, Kieran Cotter, who joins me now. He's on his way over, is he, Kieran? He is uh, left our yard here at five o'clock this morning and hope he should be in his stable in Newbury by five this evening. All going well. All right. Yeah. Good stuff. When did you earmark this race for him? Um, well, I suppose I can't exactly remember when the actual entry was. I think it was about maybe five months ago. And uh, he always struck us for, he come from, came from a fast family and uh, we said if, if he was up to the mark, he was definitely heading here. So it's been on the agenda for a long time, you know. And he turned out to be a pretty decent horse. So all systems go. So if you reflect on um, that national run at, at Sandown, um, and, and then obviously with the cheap pieces on at Tipperary, he he put in a, a much better effort. But, but did you leave Sandown a bit disappointed at all? Ah yes, we were. We were very. We were. Truth be told, we were, we thought we were going there with a live chance, but he got drawn wide, which was on the wrong side of the track in Sandown, and the horse inside him hit him. at don't when he came out the gate, uh, put him out across the track. Next thing he was last in a five furlong race, hmm. and uh, he still finished sixth. And he was beside a handful of winners, but even even at that, we were disappointed. But when he came home, he was quite sick for for a while, you know. So hmm. obviously something was incubating in him, and uh, we just couldn't line through it, you know. Mm. And then he, he was that the reason you skipped Ascot and, and went to the listed race? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just, he just, he just. The, the plan was uh, if he hit the frame in in Sandown, he was going to the Goffs London Sale uh-huh. with an entry in in Royal Ascot, and we we probably let him off or see what happens, you know. But uh, we had to drop a new plan, so we went to Tipperary and never worked out well. Yeah, and you, you know? keep keep going with the cheap pieces. Yeah, we do. It's just he's a lazy, lazy horse at home, but he switches on the track, and I suppose those are the kind of horses you really want, you know. Yeah. We all have too many of them that are flying at home and don't don't put the best foot forward when the, when it matters, you know. Going to say he doesn't look lazy on the track, but but there you go. That's the that's the right yeah, way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So please God, he turns turns up now and all goes well. Okay, Saturday, good. We're looking forward to heading over. Uh, good stuff. Good luck. And uh, I wonder if I could get an, an update on Matilda Picot. Um, wh- yeah, wh- where are we yeah. like? Where are we like to see her next? Um, the plan at the moment is Goodwood on the second of July, the seven furlong fillies Group Three race. Yeah, ah. um, we'll, we'll 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 kick off there. She's done very well. We gave her a break after her head up. We probably ran her back a bit quick, and we're a bit disappointed. We're finishing fourth to Little Big Bear, but the third horse subsequently won the King Stand, so it might have been as bad as we thought, you know. Hmm. Um, but she's done very well from a break. Yeah, yeah, she's bigger and stronger now. So she yeah, showed forward to it. she showed a load of speed last time, didn't she? Back over six, but do you think seven might just be her trip? Yeah, she showed a load of speed. Even her, her her second furlong in the Guineas, I think, was eleven seconds, mm. which is which is pretty trapping along, you know. Um, uh, look, she she she's very versatile. She could go sprinting, or she showed in the Guineas she got a mile in Group One company, you know. So she's very versatile. But uh, in time, we might go back. We might go sprinting with her. But for now, I think we'll just we'll just tackle the the seven against her own sex and. the you know, I think the triple suit her and she showed, let's say, in, in the Guineas that she's able to maintain a high, high, high pace for, for a good trip.
championship. So look, we'll see. Kieran, thanks for your time. Best of luck. Okay, look forward to heading over. Thanks for bringing it. Lee, let's turn our attention internationally. Oh, the 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 tempting carrot of Paddington to the Cox Plate is is intriguing. Is very exciting. I don't know it'll happen, but um, what did you make of that potential news? Well, I, I think I would sum it up just as you said, um, uh, Tom. It's intriguing, exciting, but I don't think it'll happen. I mean, I would, I actually would love it if it if it would happen. Uh, it did happen. Uh, it's not impossible. And to be fair, I think in, in general terms, what, what Tom Magnier was saying, um, Tom, who, who sort of heads up Kumar's uh, Australasian um, operation, um, he made the point that um, that the the team, the lads, I guess, are going to be chatting quite soon about potential Australian candidates for the the spring in australia in general terms that will be very well received um because uh aiden ballydall they haven't really had much interest uh, in the last few years we know that things have been difficult um in in victoria because of the new veterinary protocol so it'd be great if they did have some representation there this year and that clearly could happen could paddington end up in a cox plate well again Ballydoll have had success in the cox plate we know that they uh know how to win that race and certainly paddington would be um a step up on any horse that they've taken there before realistically a horse like paddington would have options in races like uh the the irish champion stakes and then the champion stakes at ascot maybe even a pre de the triumph all around that sort of time. So would they set out their stall to target the Cox Plate? I doubt it, but I would love it if they did. And to America now, here's Nick. All right, Tom. Well, as you know, I'm now in New Jersey, safely ensconced ahead of the Haskell on Saturday. And a couple of years have raced by since fixed odds betting meaningfully dropped in New Jersey, courtesy of Australian company Betmakers, whose head of international operations, Dallas Baker, joins me now. Uh, Dallas, we have heard about how fixed odds betting is going to change the landscape in America or threaten to change the landscape in America for an awful long time. Where are we now, do you think, relative to where we were two or three years ago? Well, we've... Uh, g'day, Nick. G'day, listeners. Um, we've taken the, uh, the... I think the best way to describe it is the train has left the station, but the train's got a very long journey to go. Um, it has been a, a longer journey probably than we, we anticipated when we came into it. Uh, I suppose a lot of that is just getting a real feel for the US market and how all the regulatory pieces work that you've got to work through to get a project like this from, you know, from concept to reality. Um, so there's been there's been a few challenges along the way, but the, the main thing is now that we have in New Jersey uh, developing fixed odds market, which we hope is the which we plan to be the first stages of that developing across the US. So I, I think it's. It's safe to say it's still in its embryonic stages. Um, you know, we've just basically just got the Monmouth bets, uh, the Monmouth bets side up and operational in New Jersey, and with the hope for that to 
to, to grow into a lot bigger things. But it's uh, it's the the first sprouting of uh, a very promising looking, very big tree. <laughs> Nick, I think you could say as many analog- to use as many analogies as you can in an answer. Well, I like I, I liked your train analogy, and it, it struck me that you were you were running the stopping service rather than the uh, rather than the the, the high speed <laughs> equivalent. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit of an all stations at the moment, but the important thing is that every 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 station you stop at is an important part of the process. So, I mean, look, it really does come down to. I mean, and and, and we've probably been guilty of thinking that the timelines have probably been a bit will be a bit quicker as well too. But the most important thing is that you get every step of that journey correct. You know, like so that and yes, it, it has it takes a little bit longer than it's taking a little bit longer than we probably thought but you know but then the good thing is that all of those steps have been met and done and then that then it enables you to move on to the next one and hopefully get this thing rolling out across the u.s for the benefit of the racing industry well this is this is the six four thousand dollar question isn't it or much more than that you know six hundred forty million dollar question whatever it is Uh, yeah i mean what people will look at this and say we know what happened when countries went from parimutuel exclusive to parimutuel coexisting with a sports book and it wasn't always necessarily to the benefit of racing's own coffers why would it be to the benefit of racing's coffers in the united states of america what deals does the sport have to strike with companies like yours to make sure that it's worthwhile yeah that, that's just hitting the nail on the head absolutely nick it's getting the model right um, I think what we've seen in the UK where um, the industry has come up and the fighting for, you know, the debate over whether it's going to be three quarters of a percent or a percent back to the industry. It's simply from the funding model that, that is required for racing in the modern day, it has to be more than that. Um, you need that sweet spot where the bookmakers are going to be crying that they're paying too much. And the industry's probably crying that they're not trying to get, not not getting quite enough. And probably that's pretty much where you find your sweet spot is when both parties are happy with it, but they're still walking away kicking stones to thinking that they're either paying too much or not getting enough. So the most important thing is getting that model right and working out where you can do it from a from the market point of view where you're not overtaxing the market and not overburdening the bookmakers with too higher a tax, but you're also charging the bookmakers or tax or fees or whatever those words are interchangeable um, and and but also to charging enough of a money that is a significant return to the the racing industry you look at the Australian model and and, and really I mean this is where we see so, so much great hope for the US industry I mean you re- rewind the clock 20 odd years ago when the rate the Australian racing market was deregulated in this very similar fashion to what we what, what we're trying to bring into the US or what we have started to bring into the US and you've seen the great benefits that that has done and, and it's fair to say that Australian racing 20 years ago was on the same downhill, downward spiral, year on year, slightly, slightly less handles, slightly less numbers, slightly less key, uh, KPIs. All the all the all the big indicators for racing where year on year would be you know one percent down two percent down one percent down two percent down and then on you know you remember you get to that sort that point and just because it's that slow bleed you look back at it and you sort of get twenty years into it and go what the hell happened here because you sort of you're slowly bleeding to death is probably a little bit over dramatic but you you're slowly bleeding away into a bad bad position. So I think then that you've seen the benefit of what it's brought into Australia, that it's fair to say Australian racing is now booming. Handle went from roughly around about $10 billion to now $40 billion or thereabouts in, in, in Australia, and pretty much that's all on the back of fixed odds racing. And what that has brought in with 
that with that modelling and the Australian racing grabbing around about the two and a half three percent range or thereabouts from um, from fixed odds wages that goes straight back into the industry. You've seen prize money more than double. All the safety things that have been able to do uh, to be added to tracks, all the facility improvements, all the aftercare improvements, all those things that come with running racing yeah. and racing. 30 years ago cost a lot of money to run, but it costs a lot more money to run now. So, you know, and, and, and these are things that are really not negotiable in the modern era, but they're also things that cost money. And so you need to have that revenue stream that, that, that funds that. Now, I mean, what we're seeing in the US again this week, you know, no, I don't think any passionate horse racing player likes seeing racetracks closed down. And we've seen another one being announced, Golden Gate in San Francisco, that is going to close down at the end of the year. Now, I mean, we're, we're talking in the space of 18 months, two years, pre, you know, pretty much pinnacle racing properties in Arlington and Golden Gate that are going by the wayside. Now, like, the problem I think you have with racing is because the real estate assets of racing is often outweigh what their value of a racing business is, and it just comes down to economics. And, and, and the economic, the reality of it is that there's, obviously not enough money going back in to sustain and to then to resist the temptation to sell sell off racetracks or consolidate racetracks or, or whatever the um, whatever that business decision is for that individual track. And re- but the, really the ultimate thing, is, as it often is in life, it just comes back to the holy dollar. And, you know, if there's the revenue stream that's there that's ready to go and potentially can double if not more the wagering turnover and therefore the the money that is returned to the industry then obviously you're creating a lot more yeah. healthier industry dallas thanks so much for your time today thanks Nick. dallas baker there the head of international for um uh, bet makers uh, who are now uh, very much ensconced at monmouth park tom as am i Thanks to Nick for that. Also, American News, Lee, which you brought to my attention, that the Breeders' Cup time this year is going to be moved. Why? Yes, yeah, so um, the the Breeders' Cup put out a press release yesterday um, that outlined the broadcast arrangements for the two-day meets at Santa Anita this year. Um, and what, what, not surprisingly, I think people picked up on was the fact that for the the first time in the Breeders' Cup's four-decade history, the Breeders' Cup Classic will not be the final Breeders' Cup race in the programme. Um, this year, it will be the third to last Breeders' Cup race on the Saturday, run at 3.40pm local time, West Coast time, so 6.40pm East Coast time. Uh, it will be followed by the turf sprint and the sprint, so maybe not the the greatest way to end the program. Um, the first Breeders' Cup race will be at 11.30am on the Saturday. The reason why this is happening is because NBC, along with broadcasters CBS and Fox, have got a long-term broadcast deal to televise a, a college football event called the Big Ten. They paid $7 billion over seven years for that. So it's clearly a big deal is the Big Ten and uh, NBC need to move to a football match shortly after that 3.40pm Breeders' Cup Classic. Now, as I think was the case over here when it was announced that this year's Betfred Derby would be run at 1.30pm due to the, the, the clash with the FA Cup final. For the first time, there were people who said, oh, no, this is terrible. 
um, this shows what why is racing having to uh, buckle uh, in competition with another sport? Well, you just have to live in a world of that, that's got some reality in it. Um, racing, the derby wasn't as big a deal as the FA Cup to the majority of sports fans and to, to ITV. Perfectly understandable because you just look at the ratings. Um, the same will be the case here for NBC. Um, the, the, the college football will be a bigger deal in terms of ratings and in terms of what they spent on the event than the Breeders' Cup. I think that the right attitude is to say, just as it was uh, great that the, the Derby got so much coverage on ITV again this year, the Breeders' Cup Saturday will get tons of coverage. Um, NBC are actually doing more on their main channel this year than they did last year. There'll be five races in a three-and-a-half-hour programme. That's more than was the case last year. So viewers still get tons of coverage of the horse racing. We're very fortunate in many ways that racing gets as much mainstream TV coverage as it does, particularly uh, over here. We just have to accept that there are other things that are more popular with more people and therefore racing has to, um, on some occasions, play second fiddle to those in terms of the broadcast windows then so be it. That's the harsh reality of the world. I think we should often be just be grateful for what we get. I mean, maybe be more grateful for what we get than we actually are. And yeah, six thirty Eastern time is 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 pretty much prime time. Um, that that's no bad thing at all. I guess if this is an ongoing thing, the issue could be when if and when the, the Breeders' Cup moves back to the East Coast. And um, the, the other thing worth pointing out is it's my understanding that there was a, a move by board members who foresaw this a few years back to the, the the potential early november clash with other more popular sports to to try and move the breeders cup itself to early december it, it was not well received at all at the time but perhaps they had a point there we are just a tip from you please lee just a tip um the seven o'clock at epsom um contains a runner trained by jim boyle who has done particularly well in that particular race uh, a seven furlong handicap in recent years on this occasion runs a horse called secret strength who is a bit of a character um doesn't always run as straight as one would like but on his most recent outing produced a pb when winning at newbury so that's three pounds so that i think that's probably fair and i'm tipping secret strength therefore to win the seven o'clock at Epsom this evening. I'll be there to see that bit of a character, which I think is you being polite, but <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to go up much. His secret strength of winning. Cause that's, he's never going to win by much. So there we are. Lee, thank you. Good stuff as ever. I hope you enjoyed all the content on today's podcast. Nick will return tomorrow from the States. That was Thursday, the 20th of July. Bye-bye. <laughs> You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.